looking this morning at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 to 30. A meal to remember. There are two kinds of meals that we remember. The really good ones and the really bad ones, right? I mean, I I was talking to Jen about this. What were some really good dinners we've had, and we could think about it, and what were the bad ones? Oh, yeah, we remember those as well. Some of you right now might have those experiences going through your, your brain, It's a fact that that people are three times more likely to leave a bad review than a good one. We remember the good meals, but we especially remember the bad ones. And so it's, it's a bit of a scandal that when Jesus instituted the church, which is a voluntary association of saved sinners, he made the centerpiece of our fellowship a meal. Why do that? In in an age of countless bad reviews about the church, why sit a diverse group of people at a table where the chances of division only seem to increase? Remember that in family dinners, right? Especially recent years with all of the political and social turmoil, right? People were scared to sit at the table with their family because they didn't know what kind of awkward they would be entering into. And so they avoided the dinner table. Some even in churches avoided the table. I would like to suggest that we don't need less of the table. We need more of the table that that is actually the medicine that we need to bring us together. And Jesus knows that. So Jesus gives us a meal to remember. And what are we remembering? We're remembering who he is and who we are in light of who he is. The Lord's Supper, which we'll see Jesus institute in our text this morning, it doesn't only reflect the nature of the church, but it makes the church what we are supposed to be. And here's why, because it reveals the shape of Jesus's kingdom. Here's the main point. Jesus's kingdom is a table shaped like a cross. Jesus's kingdom is a table that is shaped like a cross. Three points as we see the the beauty of this reality. This morning. First off, we'll consider the leaven, verses 1 to 6. Second, the lamb, verses 7 to 23. And third, the least, verses 24 to 30. The leaven, the lamb, the least. How's that for a good Baptist outline? All right. First off, the leaven. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 6. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and they agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd 
was not present. The the point of the whole text this morning is that we see Jesus observing the feast of the Passover with his disciples, and we're going to see that he not only observes the feast with them, but he reinterprets the feast in light of his coming death. We'll hear more about that in our second point. But Luke includes something really important and insightful about the long festival which Passover was the commencement of, the festival of unleavened bread. To understand both of these feasts, we we have to go back to the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus recounts Israel's slavery in Egypt and the Lord rescuing them out of Egypt. And on the night that the Lord was going to bring them out, they were told, be ready. He told them, you, you, you got to be in position. You got to have your staff in your hand. You got to be ready to go when I say go. And it says that when they were eating, they ate the Passover, the lamb, with unleavened bread. And what the unleavened bread came to symbolize was the need to get out of Egypt in a hurry. There was no time, no time to to bake bread. So leaven causes the dough to rise, right? There was no time to wait for the dough to rise, but it also came to symbolize not only the need to get out of Egypt in a hurry and the importance of getting out, but getting the Egypt out of them. Just as leaven causes the dough to rise as it permeates the whole loaf, God saves his people to be different, to not be like Egypt, right, to be a holy people. And so the the unleavened bread was a call to get rid of the sin in their hearts, in their homes, and in the wider community. And so we fast forward to the time of Jesus, the beginning of Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it starts, there is a meticulous cleaning of the house, sweeping it, wiping it down, Getting rid of all the leaven. All the leaven has to go. And in this way, the people were remembering their identity. We're a holy people. We're a saved people. God has saved us for himself. But then Luke shows us an irony, right? In these first six verses. What are they doing? The chief priests and the scribes are looking for a way to put Jesus to death. They're not worried about getting rid of leaven. They're worried about getting rid of the Messiah. We see Satan enters into Judas, one of Jesus' own, even one of the twelve. He goes to the chief priests and the temple police, and they hash out this agreement. They agree, you betray him into our hands. You make a little money in the process. If leaven is a picture of sin and evil permeating the whole, then what is this scene but leaven doing its work? There's an infection in Israel. And what's the goal? To get rid of Jesus. You know, it's very telling that this is an inside job. The very very core group of God's people is looking for a way to get rid of God's son. One of Jesus' own who was numbered among the 12, he's going to betray him. And we see Satan enters into Judas 
to get it done. And just as leaven works from the inside, and Satan uh, is at work, we see that the most deadly work is from the inside. All throughout Luke's gospel, we see Jesus reaching out to save calling the leadership of Israel to repentance, offering amnesty to them. I mean, even though he was willing to rebuke the leaders of Israel, he didn't say that there was no hope for them. He called them to repentance, but they did not want it. And it's here that that motive is revealed. Why don't they want it? They don't want to give up the kingdom of self. What do the chief priests and the scribes ultimately want? They want control. They want religion on their terms. They want power. They want to be in the driver's seat. What does Judas want? Well, apparently he wants money. And what we see here is that the kingdom of self cannot coexist with the kingdom of Christ. And that's because the kingdom of self is a part of the kingdom of Satan. Genesis 3. The, the, the very first act of treason against God was about the kingdom of self. Satan whispering into the ears of our first parents, you can't trust God. Do what you want. Give in to your desires. Eat the fruit and you'll be liberated. You'll become like God's. But what should unsettle us here is that Satan seems to not do his best work in the world, but in the church. Think about it. Satan infiltrated the situation and leveraged religious power and greed to kill the Messiah. This is the only time in the Bible that it says that Satan entered into someone. And so just as a quick note, Christians should not fear that this could happen to them. Those who have the Holy Spirit are protected from this. Ephesians 1.3 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. 1 John 4.4 says, Greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world. Yet we do need to be on guard and recognize Satan seeks to work from the inside. And Judas stands as a warning to all of us. He was was among us. The twelve. That word among is a terrifying word. He was with Jesus every day, which shows us that proximity to Jesus does not equal a saving relationship to Jesus. But secondly, that often the times when the church is most under threat is a threat within. This is why we we pray often and begin our church covenant by saying that we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So church gossip, slander, bitterness, unresolved conflict, recognize that those things are like leaven that permeates the church and eventually leads to disaster the disaster of a toxic and divided church. And we should weed it out at whatever cost. And then we see threats within, uh, revealed in, you know, uh, false teaching cropping its ugly head. It's a non-negotiable. You have to deal with that leaven. 
Any teaching that would detract from the person of Jesus being truly God and truly man, or the work of Jesus, that his work is finished and it is sufficient, that is a tool of Satan to get rid of Jesus because a false idea about Jesus is a false Jesus. But then we need to watch our own hearts. Satan wants you to prioritize the kingdom of self. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It can look religious or irreligious. It can look stoic or it can look really hedonistic. He doesn't care as long as Jesus is not the king. And that's where we're pointed to another inside job that needs to happen, the work of Jesus inside of us. And so let's consider our second point, the lamb, the lamb. Let's look at verses 7 to 13. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large, un, uh, a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 7 reminds us of a context that is vital for our interpretation here. The day of unleavened bread was the first day of a week-long festival that started with the Passover meal. The Jewish reckoning of a day was sundown to sundown. And so the day is Thursday at sundown, and Passover has begun. Jesus is 21 hours away from breathing his last breath. And they observe the Passover. What was Passover? Okay, so back to Exodus. The Passover was the final night of Israel in Egypt. The Lord passed by all the households of Egypt to enact judgment in the death of all the firstborn sons. But for all those, if you remember, for all of those who put the lamb's blood on the lintel and the doorposts of their home, the Lord passed over them. He passed by and they were spared. And this became the defining feast for Israel to remember their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. And as a note of foreshadowing, Luke writes, this was the day when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So, it's before sundown. Jesus sends Peter and John to get things ready. Sending two guys out for, to get dinner ready isn't the most advisable thing, but it's all he's got. It's Jesus and his 12. And so he chooses two of his most trusted disciples. He chooses Peter and John. And we see Jesus prearranged the whole thing. They're secure for them, a large furnished room. And let's come to verse 14 to 23. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. 
For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who is going to do it. When the hour came, those four words are what has been building up ever since Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. So picture them there. It's really a visual scene that we just need to just picture. They're, they're in this upper room, this ancient uh, upper room in Israel. It's dimly lit. They're, they're, they're having the feast. They're reclining together. He's with his 12 apostles, with, with his, his core group. And he says, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you. There's something about this Passover, and it is because it's coming right before he suffers. But he says, I I desire fervently to eat this with you. Jesus is, is saying, there's no place I would rather be in the world right now than with you. Think it, just, just allow the, the gravity of this to hit you. For three years, this was his company. They were always with him. They were talking with him. They were learning from him. They were watching him. He'd, and they heard again and again about the arrival of the kingdom. He's been talking about this new beginning, a new exodus that he would accomplish for the people of God. But he, up to this point, he has not really explained how that is going to happen. What the key is that unlocks the door of the kingdom. And now he does. It's a Passover that comes through his suffering. We see from Jesus' words that the Passover was not the last stop in God's redemption project. Verse 16 shows us the Passover was pointing to something greater. He says this, this will be one day fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We heard about this earlier in our congregational scripture reading. Isaiah 25 speaks of the day when God will dine with his people, the greatest feast, the greatest wine, death abolished, joy forever. But Jesus says he's not going to have this meal again until that meal. This scene has has popularly been called the last Supper, but that's really not true. There is no Last Supper. You know why? Because the Last Supper lasts forever. (laughs) It is an eternal feast of joy. The kingdom of God is a table. Just let that, that sink in. Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom that is described as a party. It's not marked by boredom or yawning or touchy company or tension that is thick. It is a realm of closeness, of celebration, of love. But what Jesus shows us at this supper is that that day is going to come at a cost. 
The kingdom is a table that is shaped like a cross. So we see Jesus here. He's, he's officiating the standard Passover Seder. But he conducts the litur- liturgy. And, and as he's going through the, the, the motions of the dinner, as would have been very common for a Jewish audience, he starts speaking strangely. His words are different. There were four cups of wine. In verse 17, this is likely the second cup. And Jesus hands it to the the disciples and he says, share this among yourselves, a common cup that they passed around and all took a drink out of. Why? He says, because he won't drink it again with them until the kingdom of God comes. I think what Jesus is saying here, in, in a sense, is take care of one another. Because I'm going away. You guys have a shared life. It's striking that this was a meal that was reserved for families. But we don't see Jesus with Mary. We don't see the disciples with their families. We see Jesus instituting a new family. And he is the one who brings these men together. And these men were different in so many ways. We've talked about this before. You had political zealots. You had sellout tax collector. You you had men who were different in many social ways. But Jesus is their unity. One of the greatest witnesses to the truth of the gospel is the unity of Christians. We don't always do well with this. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus calls us to do it. There are people who profess to be Christians who want nothing to do with other Christians. And that is a red flag. There's people who profess to be Christians, but they don't prioritize the gathering of the church or the partaking of the Lord's Supper. They can never inconvenience themselves for the sake of others. And if they're called to repent, they get offended. And if that's you, just take note that it's our fellowship with God's people now that points forward to the fellowship of heaven. And so how can we expect to be at that table if we can't be found at this table? We need to crucify our selfishness. We need to crucify our individualism. But how in the world can we do that? Well, Jesus shows us. You can only crucify selfishness through the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 19, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The the, the one presiding over the typical Seder meal would say something different. He would say, This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And yet we don't hear Jesus saying that. He says, this is my body given for you. As if to say, this is the bread of my affliction. See, at this point in the Passover meal, after the bread was broken, the lamb would be eaten. But do you notice there's no mention of a lamb? And that's because they didn't need a lamb because Jesus was standing right in front of them. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And on that next day, the day of Passover, Jesus would be the sacrifice. He would be the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. And so let's talk about the cross. On the cross, his body was broken. And his affliction would be our healing. His death would be our life. And if he is your Passover lamb, if his blood covers the doorposts and the lintel of your life, you are saved. You're saved. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet responded to Jesus, you're not a a Christian, just know that's how it works. It's nothing you do. It's about what Jesus has done. His blood needs to cover your life. You need to receive him as your sacrifice. And if you will, he will receive you. He will save you. And here's why that is such good news. Because on the cross, Jesus actually removes the punishment of God by taking the punishment himself. And if our faith is in him, what that means, logical deduction and scriptural deduction there's no punishment left. Zero punishment. Zero wrath. I love the lines from an, from an old hymn from, a, from Augustus Toplady who says, it, it says, payment God cannot twice demand. Payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. God is not unjust. He can't demand double payment. If, 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 faith in Jesus, if faith in Jesus is Jesus clearing your debt, which means there is no payment left. So when Jesus says for you, he doesn't mean partially for you. He doesn't mean kind of for you. He doesn't mean not really for you. He means for you. He takes your place. Shame and guilt are real. We all live with it. But know this, if you have received Jesus as your substitute lamb, they have no place in your life anymore. That doesn't mean that we don't confess our sin anymore, but it means that the cloud of God's judgment no longer hangs over you if you have come to Christ. But also know that if you still struggle with intense feelings of shame and guilt, the cloud of God's judgment still does not hang over you. What is real about Jesus is what is most real. Only his love pledged to you at the cross is what defines you. It's a new covenant. Jesus lifts up the cup. This would have been probably the third cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Verse 20. What's a covenant? A covenant, uh, the closest idea that we have to a covenant today is is a marriage. A pledging of the self to the other. A giving of of the self. But in ancient times, it, it wasn't just a vow that was made, but it was a vow that was made with blood. That's how a covenant worked. It was a vow with blood. As if to say, if I break this covenant, may my blood be shed. 
But the new covenant is not in our blood. It's in Jesus' blood. It's for you. Which means that all the times that you fail, Jesus pays the price. And his payment is once for all. It is sufficient. Amen? The, the, the prophets like Jeremiah foretold of the new covenant. They said there was coming a day when God would initiate a new covenant and it would have two distinctive features, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling presence of God's spirit. The new covenant shouts to us not only that we have pardon, but we have power. To quote uh, from another old hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He cancels it and he breaks its power. And so flowing from the cross is the very life of God cleansing us with his forgiveness and then indwelling us with his spirit. It's an inside job. Which means you can change. Whatever the sin is that is besetting you, that you're entangled with, God has not only forgiven you of it, but he has given you a spirit by which you can crush it. So don't lose heart. Keep fighting it. Keep looking to Jesus. And here's how we do that. He tells us, he says, do this in remembrance of me. You know, one of the primary ways that we fight against sin and fight against Satan, that we fight against guilt and shame, is to partake regularly of the new Passover, the Lord's Supper. I don't have a bunch of flashy applications of the text this morning. The main application is do this in remembrance of me. It's take the Lord's Supper. This is a command for churches. It's a command for baptized Christians who make up those churches, which means if if you're a Christian, you're called to this. Not on your terms, but on the terms that Jesus has set. So So he calls us first to believe, to be baptized, and then to join him at his table. But here's why this is so important. If we are not being pointed to the cross of Christ and his selfless love for us, which this meal points, I fear that we fall either into the the pitfall of apathy about our sin or despair about our sin. And this meal communicates to us week after week that we can't be apathetic about our sin because look at the depth of our sin. It required the cross of Jesus. It required this from God. But also, we, we can't despair over our sin because it shows us an even greater depth, which is the depth of God's love for sinners. That Jesus went to the cross. And so we're told, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, here is the medicine. So, what does Jesus mean by remember? We're in a Western, very rationalistic society. I think what a lot of people think that means is I shut my eyes really tight, and I try to picture him on the cross, and then I try to beat up on myself for all the bad things I did that week. That's not what he means when he says, do this in remembrance of me. 
A good way to discern what remember means is what did it mean to the Jewish person who observed the Passover when they were told to remember? For them, it meant entering in. It meant participating. They would, they would actually envision themselves coming out of Egypt. So you may have been an, an Israelite who lived a thousand years after the exodus of Egypt, but a, a Jewish Mishnah puts it like this, in every generation, that man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. So sometimes I get asked why our church doesn't do an altar call, and uh, I I think what my new response is going to be is, actually, we do do an altar call. We do it every week. It's called the Lord's table. And instead of being invited to fall on your face and grovel before God, we invite you to fall at the feet of Jesus and receive grace for all the times you've failed. Every Sunday, after we hear God's word preach, we have our come to Jesus moment. It's the Lord's Supper. And so when we're reflecting before we come to the table, as we remember Jesus, remember him by picturing yourself there. Picture yourself just totally exposed, vulnerable, at your worst, at your most hurting, and then picture Jesus on the cross saying, this is for you. I love you. Picture him saying, I want you in my kingdom. Man, that will transform you. When you're reflecting before you uh, come to the table and, and then when you come forward, don't picture me here. Don't picture the, the people who are holding the elements giving it to you, but picture Jesus himself looking you in the eyes with love saying, this is for you. Take and eat. I forgive you. My blood covers you. And here's what is just amazing about all this. As we remember this physical token of the reality finds itself in our hands and swallowed into our very being. It should not be lost on us that Jesus instituted this meal. And it has been happening for 2,000 years ever since his death in remembrance of him, in obedience to him. And so as real as the bread and the cup are in your hands, that is how real the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is. That's how real his love is. So all I can say is in light of that, Come to the feast and get the tangible expression of the cross. If you believe, but you still need to be baptized as a believer, well, come to the waters and then come to the feast. If you've not yet joined yourself to a church community, do that so you can partake in the right way. It's not just an individual meal, but it's with his disciples in the company of the church. And if you're already following Christ in these steps of obedience, don't neglect the regular observance of this meal. Because as you do it, as you give yourself to it, and as you remember in the way that you're supposed to of picturing yourself there, 
receiving from Christ, it will transform the way you see your Savior, and it will transform you in the process. You'll be shaped by grace. Before we move on to our, our next point, let's, let's briefly consider what Jesus says in verse 21 to 23. He says, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. We should pause and consider the intention of Jesus to go to the cross. He says, it has been determined. What kind of language is that? That's, that's predestination kind of language. In this way, Jesus is showing that he is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, in a sense. We see here the doctrine of God's sovereignty, that God was so determined to save a people for himself that it was predetermined that his glory and his goodness would be put on full display in the cross of Christ. And in this way, we see that there is nothing that can stop the love of God. It's, the cross is not a late idea that got God put together to take care of us. The cross of Christ being determined beforehand shows us that before Adam and Eve even ate the forbidden fruit, God was already steps ahead of them. To save them. And yet, we, we shouldn't think that this involves some sort of fatalism. That predetermination means that we don't have human responsibility. Right? Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. And we, we shouldn't think that way because notice what Jesus says next. He says, this has been predetermined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is willing. Satan doesn't enter into Judas as an unwilling victim. He's not a robot who's suddenly behaving in ways that are strange to himself. No, this is a person who has nurtured sin in his heart and has welcomed Satan's entry. And so God is sovereign, we are responsible, and we hold those together. This is called compatibilism. They are compatible. Even though our human minds might not always grasp it, God is sovereign, he ordains all things, he does as he pleases, and yet this never cancels out human responsibility. But what we see here is that Jesus is the willing lamb. God's will to save sinners is his will, and it will be accomplished, and that should fill us with certainty that just as Jesus' death was predetermined, his plan to rescue you and me, that was predetermined as well. And when we grasp that, that will level us into a place of humility and gratitude. And so let's consider our final point, the least, verses 24 to 30. After Jesus uh, speaks about his betrayer, we see the disciples get into an argument about who it could be. And their argument is essentially, who is the worst among us? Right? Who, who is the, the worst person in the room who would probably do this? And that naturally leads into a dispute about who is the greatest among them. So let's read verse 24 to 30. 
Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How wrong does this scene look? Jesus has just got done basically saying, you know all those lambs that have been sacrificed for the last 2,500 years? You could sacrifice those for eternity and it wouldn't be enough to cleanse you of your sin before God. That is how deep your sin is, that it requires me to be the lamb. And the disciples essentially say, okay, great. Now let's talk about which one of us is the greatest. It's just a silly scene. And Jesus probably looks at them bewildered and is thinking, this is exactly why I have to go to the cross. Because man is so prideful, so selfish, so self-centered. And yet we see the love of Christ, that he patiently teaches them this lesson before he goes to the cross. He says the Gentiles, which is his way of saying the unbelieving world, the the unsaved world, they think that power is the meaning of existence. They abuse their authority. They give, but only for the purpose of having people in, in their debt. And Jesus says emphatically, it is not to be that way among you. He says the greatest should become like the youngest. The leader should become a servant. He turns the values of our world on on their head. And he transforms us from a selfish kingdom to a selfless kingdom. And that's because we're taking our cues from a selfless king. Verse 27, he says, who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one serving? And they naturally look at each other and they they say, well, it's the one at the table. Of course, Jesus, you're leading this this service right now. You're the greatest. Jesus is that one at the table. But then he points out something strange about his leadership. He says, I am among you as the one who serves. Judas is among them as the one who serves himself. Jesus is the one among them who serves them and even Judas. And what he does in these words is he reorients our view of greatness. In Jesus' kingdom, greatness is not displayed through power, but through sacrifice, through a cross. Not, Not by claiming, not by demanding, but by serving. And so let's allow Jesus to lift the hood of our hearts and do a checkup on us. 
What is your definition of greatness? Is it defined by the world or is it defined by Jesus? Disciples of Jesus must be servants. And the gift of Christian community is that we are given this wide playing field for serving one another. In, in, in the words of Paul, we are called to outdo one another in showing honor. What kind of community would that look like? If everybody's primary goal was to just outdo one another in showing honor, seeking to serve, seeking to encourage. I, I said at the beginning that, that people remember two kinds of meals, right? The really good ones and the really bad ones. And sadly, there are churches that leave people with a bad impression because they look no different from the selfishness of our world. Humble servanthood is a distinctive of authentic Christianity. And it comes from people who view themselves as the least. People who say, the only reason I'm going to heaven is because the God-man on the cross. People who say, I don't deserve it. I deserve hell. But because of his mercy, because of the substitute sacrifice of the lamb, I get what I don't deserve. And so how can I demand to be served when God has served me in such a way? So just a practical step here for us. Just act. Keep your eyes open and ask, where can I serve? Where can I be like my Savior? Are you a servant? Are you ready to, to, to serve in your home, with your family, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the church. Let the cross of Jesus humble you and move you away from selfishness into selflessness. Jesus shows that a life that embraces him and his way will be met with future glory. This is the silver lining. You might lose in this life. You might at times get treated like a doormat. But there's a glory to come. Look at verse 28 to 30. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Though the apostles would receive the special roles as a reconstituted Israel. They would become the 12 uh, judges of the tribes of Israel. This is a role that is just for them. We shouldn't miss the massive reality that comes to all of Jesus' disciples when he says, I bestow on you a kingdom. And what is that kingdom? He says, it is my kingdom and it is my table. A kingdom where we will feast with our Savior forever. This meal is about that meal. I appreciate C.S. Lewis in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, who's the Christ figure, he undoes the curse of death by dying on a stone table. 
So as the demonic forces of darkness were feasting on him, it looked like all was lost, but the tables were being turned. And Jesus' kingdom is a table that is shaped like a cross. And for eternity, we will rejoice and give him thanks. We will join together and we will say he has done great things. And we get to do that now as we come to the table and proclaim his death until he comes. And so let's pray and then come forward.